Well, we are in the Advent season, as you can tell and as you can see, and it's finally time we can start watch, uh, listening to uh, Christmas music, watching Christmas programs, and all these kinds of things. Some of y'all have been sneaking it in for the last month or two. I know you're out there. Uh, I'm a purist. Like, I don't start listening to Christmas music until I see Santa Claus and the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade. Then it's on. That's how it rolls with me. But, but now I'm, I'm fully in. We put our Christmas tree up last night and watched Elf. Uh, so like, we're, we're all in. We're all in. Um, our Advent series is going to be something a little bit different this year, and frankly, I'm excited about it. I'm thrilled about it. We've taken the Nowhere Town theme, which is connected to that concert on the 14th and 15th, and we said, honestly, the theology behind that is that God tends to show up in the middle of nowhere. God tends to pick unexpected times, unexpected places, unexpected moments to do his best work. That's what happened in Nowhere Town, i.e. Bethlehem, and that's a pattern throughout Scripture. So we're going to look at three or four Old Testament passages over the, over the next few weeks, and we're going to tie them to the Christmas story. And the tie is that in each of these instances, God shows up in the middle of nowhere. Now, I don't know how many of you did travel on this Thanksgiving. We drove down to Atlanta. Jody's parents are in Atlanta. And, uh, and, and we, we tend to make that trip a lot. And there's a couple spaces in that trip where you feel like you're in the middle of nowhere. I mean, it's like you're, you've left Nashville and all that stuff, but you're not yet to Chattanooga. And you're just there. And, and the, the worst possible time for the girls to have to use the bathroom is when you're in the middle of nowhere. Or, or for you to be hungry, you know, we literally try to time the meals so that we don't hit in the middle of nowhere. Because, you know, there's just not a lot other than the truck stops. So we were traveling, and uh, one of our daughters said she had to use the bathroom. And I said, there's nowhere to use the bathroom. She said, what do you mean there's nowhere to use the bathroom? You know, there's always some place to use the bathroom. And I said, not here. We're in the middle of nowhere. And she said, what's the middle of nowhere? I said, it's here. <laughs> you know, it's where we are. It's the middle of nowhere. There's not good places to eat. There's not good places to use the bathroom. Now, you know, first world problems, I know. But it got me thinking about this theme. And here's the idea. You really think about this for a minute. Christmas is the, the ultimate middle of nowhere moment in human history. It's the most important moment in human history. Up to that point in time, I would argue that the resurrection of Jesus was even more profound, even more important 30 so years later. But most important moment in human history up to that point in time, and where did it happen? Not in some great city, not in Rome, not even in Jerusalem. Happens in a little town of Bethlehem. Uh, who did it happen to? Not important people, poor people, insignificant people from the world's eyes. Uh, and so what makes this series interesting, I think from my perspective, is going to be to connect some dots to see a pattern. Oh, this is how God tends to work in unexpected ways, in unexpected places, oftentimes in the middle of nowhere. And my expectation for this series is that the Spirit will use these nowhere stories to give us hope for the significant work that God wants to do in what seem like insignificant places in our lives. The significant work that God wants to do in the nowhere places of our lives because those are the exact moments and exact places where God plans to show up. So open your Bibles this morning to Genesis 28. And as you're turning there, let me set this up. Our first nowhere story from the Old Testament is going to be uh, uh, involving a man named Jacob and an encounter he had with God in the middle of nowhere. Some brief context, Jacob is Abraham's grandson. So you remember, God promised Abraham, I'm gonna make your family into a great nation. Problem was, Abraham didn't have any kids and his wife was barren. She couldn't have children. She was already old. So they prayed and prayed and prayed and waited and waited and fought. finally, God gave them a son, Isaac. 
So Isaac went on to have two sons of his own. His oldest was Esau. The youngest son was Jacob. Now, Jacob is the more known for, for the reason that I'm about to tell you. But Esau was the oldest son. And by rights, Esau was going to have all the firstborn benefits and blessing and birthright that that culture would entail. The problem is his younger brother, Jacob, was a trickster. And Jacob tricked him two different times. He stole his birthright on one occasion and he stole the father's blessing on another occasion. And immediately after that second trickery, when he stole the spiritual blessing of the father Isaac, which had very significant impact uh, in that time, Esau is furious and he plans to kill Jacob. So Jacob has to flee. And Jacob's mother, Rebecca, who liked Jacob best, she came to him and said, listen, I want you to go all the way up to Haran, which is her homeland where she came from, way outside the promised land. And I want you to find there my brother, Rebecca talking here, my brother Laban, and you can stay with him until the anger of your brother Esau cools down and then someday you can come back. So uh, Jacob goes off. And, and let me go ahead and show you on a map where he's going from just to give you some context. Now, you, know, you can kind of see where Israel is on the bottom there. If you see those um, kind of the body of water down there in the, the lower half of the map, that's the Dead Sea. If you go up the Jordan River a little bit north of that, you'll see the Sea of Galilee. But, but Jacob's path is the red line and it starts at Beersheba. I know you can't see the, the little words in the back there, but the very bottom where that red line starts and goes from south all the way to north. Look how far up Haran is, way up there. This is where Rebecca's from, well outside the promised land. And Jacob's gonna go all the way up there. He's gonna stay there 20 years. He, he's gonna meet uh, his wife, Rachel. He's actually gonna have two wives and that's a whole big drama as well. And then 20 years later, he's eventually gonna come back down to the promised land. On the way, in his escape, from Beersheba, where he was living, he encounters God. And, and for the first time in his life, he encounters God. That's what we're going to look at. Look at Genesis 28, beginning in verse 10, and we'll cover verses 10 and 11 in this first segment. Jacob left Beersheba and went toward Haran. So now you can picture that journey. He came to a certain place and stayed there that night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head and lay down in that place to sleep. Good Bible study tip. You look for words that get repeated. There is one word that's repeated three times in these two verses. Someone shout out, what's the word that's repeated? Place. Place, that's it. Did you catch that? It's like the author's going out of his way to say the word place. That's interesting. It tips you off that place is gonna turn out to be an important part of the story. But what's ironic is at this point, it's a no place. It's the middle of nowhere. It doesn't say anything about Jacob stopping for any reason other than the sun had set. So, and he, you know he's not in any big city or anything like that because he literally takes a stone. He's out under the stars by the side of the road, more than likely, probably off, you know, far enough from the road so that he doesn't get seen because it could be dangerous at night to be traveling along the road. He puts his head on a stone and he lays down in that place to sleep in the middle of nowhere. Look what happens next. Verse 12. And he dreamed. And behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth and the top of it reached to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and your offspring. 
Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. This was a very significant moment. Obviously huge for Jacob, but huge for the whole story of the nation. This was the moment that God showed up to Jacob's life, a sheer act of grace. Remember, this guy had just tricked his brother, and and I I believe in a sinful kind of way, in in a scheming, conniving kind of way, and God, in spite of Jacob's sin, in spite of Jacob's trickery, shows up and says, because of my promise to Abraham, you know, you're getting the promise. Sheer act of grace. Now, uh, if, if you notice a couple of things in this text, we're not gonna spend a lot of time in these verses because I wanna keep moving on, but this whole idea of a ladder between heaven and earth is interesting. By the way, we, when, when we hear the word ladder in, in English, it's translated this way in the ESV, we automatically think of like the, you know, the ladder with rungs and that kind of thing. It probably wasn't that. It was probably more of a stairway. And the word in Hebrew is a unique word. It only shows up in this one place in the entire Old Testament. And so there's some ambiguity of what the word actually means. Some say ladder, some say stairwell or staircase. I want to make a case for staircase, and I'll do that in a minute. But first, let me show you how some artists have uh, pictured this moment throughout human history because it's a stunning, it's a stunning moment. Like it's, how can you imagine this stairwell, this ladder that goes up? So let me show you one that's kind of a classic representation that, that honestly kind of drives me nuts a little bit, and I'll tell you why it drives me nuts. I know this one's hard to see because of the orientation of it, but what the artists chose to do, and you know, you can tell this is like, you know, Renaissance period, or I don't, I don't know a lot about art, I'm, you're about to find that out if you didn't know that already, but um, you can kind of see it's, it's, it's um, painted in this long skinny way, which makes sense because there's that ladder. Now, to me, that just looks kind of ridiculous to have this like 300, 400 foot ladder, and then these like very unangel looking angels, and the reason I say that, by the way, is because angels did not look like that. They don't look like that. That, that's how artists have conceived them. There's actually no place in scripture that describes a human-looking angel with wings. There are human-looking angels, messengers of God, but they never have wings in the scripture. There are winged angelic creatures that are described as well, but they don't look like humans, you see. So you know, what artists have done is they've taken you know, human-form-looking angels and they put wings on them, and that's our classic definition of, of wings. And don't even get me started on the little plump little cherubim, like Cupid kind of people. That's, that's, that's nowhere in the scripture, okay? Angels don't look like that. Second thing, look how white Jacob is. It's like, come on, you know, this is, this is the art that we kind of grew up with. I don't think the image would have looked anything like that. Let's go to an, another picture. By the way, I'm sure that artist is incredible, but, you know, sorry, it's not for me. Okay, this one, you still have some of the same issues with the angels and this kind of thing, but, but now you've got a, a stairwell going up. So I wanted you to kind of see what that might, might have looked like, a little bit of a difference. Go ahead and go to the third one as well. Now, this one, the art's not as spectacular, but, but I think, okay, now this is starting to get actually a little bit more realistic in my mind because every time angels are, are show up in scripture, it's bright and there's light and there's fear involved. And Jacob's gonna have fear, by the way, when he wakes up, he's gonna be pretty afraid from what he saw. So you kind of just see this bright light and some you know, bright beings you know, coming up and down a, a staircase. Go ahead and go to the next uh, image as well. 
Uh, th this one's not meant to be realistic at all, but I kind of like it. it. It's a surreal image, and you have this beautiful spiral staircase that goes up. And, and look at the angelic beings. You know, it's a whole different feel, a whole different vibe. You know, and the only thing about this is I don't know that that would have really frightened Jacob necessarily, but, but it's one artist's way of looking at it. Go ahead and go to the next one as well. Now, this one's even less realistic, you know, just like these orbs of light going up and down a ladder. It's kind of interesting, that take on it as well. And then I want to show you one more. Uh, this one's not a painting. This is an actual um, exhibit in a cathedral in San Francisco three years ago, Grace Cathedral in 2016. An artist came in and he built a ladder with LED lights. And what's cool about this, I don't know if you can see that image, but there's an image that could be you know, going up and down, kind of like in a figure, an angel walking up and down those LED lights. So can you imagine going in this gorgeous cathedral with this huge ladder of light going up to the top of the cathedral and these ethereal looking images going up and down? I really like that one. It's kind of awe-inspiring. <clears throat> okay. That was mostly just for fun to sort of, you know, stir your imagination. What did this look like? Artists have been inspired by this for thousands of years. Let's dial in to what this means because it's less important what it looked like. It's more important what it means. I never really understood what this Jacob's stairway, Jacob's ladder was all about until I paid attention to the following two verses the next two verses in the story, what happens when Jacob wakes up and what he says when he wakes up. Let's take a look at verses 16 and 17. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, surely the Lord is in this place and I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, how awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of God and this is the gate of heaven. The first key to understanding this story is to realize that in Jacob's mind, he connects the dream to the place, the physical location. He says, surely the Lord is in this place, and I didn't even know it. And he goes on the next verse, how awesome is this place? Now, this seems a little unusual to us. When I have a dream, a weird dream, I don't really associate it with a place. I just think, man, I had a weird dream. You know, it's more internal to me, less about the place or the, 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 the bed or the, the location that I was sleeping in. But, but this leads us to our second key to understanding this story. So the first key is understand that, that Jacob connected his dream to a place, location. The second key, you have to know something about how the Hebrews understood heaven and earth. And tra track down. This is going to be a, a little bit of a theological dive, but it's going to be a, kind of a fun one and, and I think worth it. Um, the Hebrew word for heaven is the same word they use for sky. So when you know, Hebrews talk about heaven, like they're not picturing like, oh yeah, like the heaven, like where you go when you die, heaven, that kind of thing. That, that's sort of an incorrect way to understand that. They, they say it's the skies, it's the heavens. In fact, the word in Hebrew is always plural. So when we say in our vernacular, look up in the heavens, you're not thinking of like the heaven where God lives. You're thinking, okay, the stars and the clouds and the sky where the birds live, it's the heavens. That's closer to what the Hebrews meant when they said the word heavens. I mean, we also might use the word skies today. Like, look in the skies, or you know, the, 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 there's an airline that was, you know, fly the friendly skies. That's this idea. Now, why did they associate God's space, heaven, with the, the skies? Because in the Psalms, 
from a very poetic uh, standpoint, the authors of the Psalms and other places in Hebrew poetry as well, they associate God with being high above, with being above everything else, with, with being all powerful and kind of with the vantage point to look down on earth which is a good way of describing God. So they place God's home, if you will, in the heavens. Well, where is God in reality? Is he only in the sky? Of course not. He's everywhere. He's omnipresent. But, but they associated, in, in this point in God's progressive revelation, okay, they associated the skies, the heavens, with God's space and the earth below human space. God's space, human space. Now, Theologically, the Hebrews, God revealed to them that his presence is everywhere, but they also understood that there seemed to be certain places where God's space and human space overlap. Holy places. And, and so um, this is how ancient people thought of temples. Now, there was no Hebrew temple at this point in history, but there were many other pagan beliefs around them who had temples. And ancient people, Hebrew people included, thought of temples as sort of portals between man's space and God's space. It's clear that this is what's going on in Jacob's mind. You'll see that in just a minute. Now, I want to use an analogy that I got from Tim Mackey, who's one of the guys at the Bible Project. If you haven't checked that out yet, go to their website. They do videos and they, there's a podcast that's excellent as well, the Bible Project. And here's what Tim Mackey says. He says, it's a little bit like this, like you, you and I today to get internet access, you know, if you don't have data on your device or whatever, you have to go and find a hotspot. So you go in a coffee shop or you, you know, go work cafe or wherever where there's a hotspot. That's how you're going to be connected. Think about that analogy Hebrew people, ancient people, they thought of holy places and temples as kind of like hot spots, you know, where there's a connection between heaven and earth. So go back to Jacob. And, and I want you, some, some of y'all are looking at me weird, like Rob just went off the weird deep end. Now it's right here in the text. I want you to look at this. Jacob falls asleep in a seemingly random place in the middle of nowhere. He has this remarkable dream of a stairway or maybe a ladder or something between heaven and earth. From his perspective, he has stumbled into a hot spot a place where heaven and earth overlap. He wakes up and says, how awesome is this place? I had not even known. He says, this is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. I didn't even know it. By the way, this is why I think it was more likely a stairway rather than a ladder is because the perception here is a temple. So you don't climb a ladder to get up to a temple. You walk up a stairwell. You walk up a staircase or maybe you even go up a ramp up to a temple. I think that's, that's the image that's going on in his mind. Now, track with me, because this is going to get really theologically profound and exciting as we continue to move through this. Look at the next, oh, I don't know, five verses or so, 18 to 22, however many that is. Verse 18, so early in the morning, Jacob took the stone that he had put under his head and set it up for a pillar and poured oil on top of it. And why is he doing all this? You're about to see. He called the name of that place Bethel. Pause there for a minute. Bethel means house of God. So in Hebrew, Beth, or be probably better pronounced Beit. El, Beit means house. El means God. House of God, Beit El, Bethel. But the name of the city was Luz at the first. So now we find out there was some city nearby, not right there, but you know, he was probably in the surrounding vicinity of this Canaanite city called Luz. And you know, from the author's perspective, he's saying, hey, that, that place is now Bethel. It used to be called Luz. Verse 20, then Jacob made a vow 
saying, if God will be with me and will keep me in this way that I go, which is exactly what God had just promised, and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear, verse 21, so that I come again to my father's house in peace. Remember, he's running away from his father's house right now because his brother wants to kill him. Then the Lord shall be my God. And this stone, which I have set up for a pillar, shall be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will give a full tenth to you. Do you see what Jacob is doing? He's marking the spot. He is establishing it as a holy place. It's like, I found a place where heaven and earth oversect. It's a house of God. It's a temple. I'm gonna mark it right here. He's gonna come back to it 20 years later. And he's gonna worship there again. Bethel becomes the most important place of worship in the patriarchal period. There is no more important place of worship until the tabernacle, years and years and years and years later, after the exodus, when the nation of Israel now have a holy of holies and a tabernacle, the tabernacle eventually finds a permanent resting spot in Jerusalem and eventually is replaced with the temple. So there is a theological line that you can connect from Jacob's dream at Bethel, to the tabernacle, and ultimately to the temple in Jerusalem. These are all places understood as physical spaces where heaven and earth overlap. Now, I know some of you are struggling with this because you're like, but we know that's not how it works. You know, it's, there's no like physical place that's special, like a portal. You know, that's... Can you allow God to... to, to progressively reveal truth throughout the 66 books of the Bible. Can you allow that at this point in time in Genesis 28, this is the understanding that God was giving to the people and that we would know more later as the story is revealed through the rest of the books of the Bible. So what's the big idea of this? That's what I want us to look at. Here it is. The presence of God transforms a nowhere place into a sacred place. Where God is, that place is special. That's what Jacob realizes. Jacob goes to sleep in the middle of nowhere. He puts his head on a common dirty rock. That rock ends up on the top of a pillar that marks the most important place of worship in this whole period of history for the Hebrew people. What a transformation. What was behind all that transformation? The presence of God. Bruce Waltke is an Old Testament scholar, and I love the way he puts it. This is just so helpful. Until God reveals his presence at Bethel, Jacob's place appears dark, stony, and hard. However, when his eyes are open to see beyond his physical surroundings to the metaphysical, his hard place is transformed into an awe-inspiring sanctuary, the axis between heaven and earth. Walter Brueggemann, who's another biblical scholar, uh, says this about the symbolic meaning of the stairway and the angels coming and going. Now it is asserted that earth is a place of possibility because it has not been and will not be cut off from the sustaining role of God. That's the significance of the connection point between God's space and heaven's space. 
Like, that's what Brueggemann's getting into. Earth is a place of possibilities. A little bit like what Mandy was saying earlier of like, Jesus came in the flesh. There's some significance to our bodies in that, that our bodies are not throwaway. There's meaning to them, that Jesus took on a body, Jesus took on flesh. Same thing with the earth. The earth is a place of possibility because it's not been and will not be cut off from the sustaining role of God. Even more importantly, the presence of God transforms not just a place, but a person. To paraphrase Brueggemann's quote, here's what the dream means for Jacob. Now, Jacob's life is a life of possibility because it has not been and will not be cut off from the sustaining role of God. Jacob, the younger brother, conniving, sinful, tricking, who's fleeing for his very life, leaving the promised land, not ever knowing if he's gonna be able to come back to it again, God shows up in an act of grace and it means that Jacob's life is now a life of possibility. And all this happens in the middle of nowhere. So not only is the place transformed from a nowhere to a somewhere, the man is transformed from a nobody to a somebody. Bruce Waltke, one more time, says this, in sum, the story is filled with transformations due to God's presence. A man running away from home runs into God. A man afraid of his brother comes to fear God instead. A certain place becomes nothing less than God's place. A rock becomes a temple. Night turns into morning. Canaanite Luz becomes Hebrew Bethel, the house of God. It's the transformations in the story are remarkable. Now, you need to ask me a question. The question is, what does all this have to do with Christmas? Thank you for asking that question because that's where I want to go next. Now, flip in your Bibles, turn in your Bibles all the way to John chapter one. Go, go ahead and go there if you have your Bible with you. And, and I, want, I want to show you something amazing. Uh, so there are four gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They all talk about the arrival, the advent of Jesus. John talks about the advent, the arrival in a very unique way. It's beautiful and profound. Look at the first four verses, and then we'll skip down to verse 14. Look at the first four verses of John chapter one. I'll read it. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him uh, was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. That's all creation. Genesis chapter one being retold. Now skip down to verse 14 and now he's gonna talk about Christmas. Verse 14. And the word became flesh. That's Christmas. And dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. The English phrase dwelt among us comes from the Greek word that means tabernacled. You know, tabernacle is a tent. It's a dwelling. He, he, he set up tent. You know, he tabernacled. He, he, he came. Uh, what John is saying is that Jesus is the ultimate overlap between heaven and earth. He is the ultimate hot spot. He is the ultimate intersection between God's space and human space. Fully God, fully man, one person. Intersection. God's space, man's space, heaven, earth, 
come together. It gets even better. Look at the end of the first chapter of, of John. We're gonna go to verse 47. Now, John was brilliant. He did all this intentionally. Of course, you know, he was inspired by the Holy Spirit, so that has to help. But he was a brilliant author, and this is what he writes about right, right after. Like, this is in the same chapter. You know, he didn't have chapter headings, but it's in the same flow of thought. Verse 47, this, Jesus is gonna call one of his disciples right here. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, how do you know me? Jesus answered him, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. Jesus answered him, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, here it is, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Son of Man is Jesus' favorite title for himself. He's talking about himself. Guys, if you've never understood what Jesus was talking about here before, you, you, you will today. This is a direct reference to Jacob's dream. There is no question about it. It's such an important Hebrew narrative, such an important part. There's nothing else that Jesus would have been talking about here. Nathaniel would have known this story like the back of his hand. You see what Jesus is saying? He's saying, I am the stairway. Like you will see the angels descending and ascending on me. The stairway, the ladder, whatever you want to say. I am, Jesus is saying, the place where heaven and earth intersect. I am, Jesus is saying, the gateway to heaven. So Bethel, then the tabernacle, then the temple, they all point to Jesus. They're Old Testament prototypes that find their fulfillment in Christ. And the, the glory of God's progressive revelation, you know, you know what the ultimate lesson in this, all, all of it is? He's saying, listen, the intersection of heaven and earth is not a place, it is a person. Jesus. This explains why Jesus referred to himself as the temple in John chapter two, verse 19. Like guys, this is just like 19 verses later. Again, same stream of thought. John, John's telling this story for us. You know, you know, Jesus says this, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up again. He's not talking about a building. He's talking about his body. He's calling himself the temple. How can he do that? Because the temple was only a prototype pointed to him. The tabernacle pointed to Christ. Bethel, this altar, this ladder, Jesus. It's all about Jesus. Now, what does all of this mean for us? That's where we need to get to. That's where we're gonna apply this today. Um, let me summarize where we've been and then apply it. Jacob's dream in the middle of nowhere became a massively important moment for the family that became the nation of Israel. The presence of God at Bethel transformed a nowhere place to the house of God. Fast forward 2,000 years after that, another nowhere place, this time the little town of Bethlehem. By the way, Bethlehem, Beth, Beit, house, Lechem, bread, house of bread, Bethlehem. 
Another nowhere place, this time Bethlehem, becomes the ultimate house of God, the birthplace of God himself, second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ. And through Christ, we learn that the intersection of heaven and earth is ultimately not a place, but a person. An unexpected person too, a baby. A nobody from the world's eyes, born into a poor family. Do you see the pattern? The presence of God transforms the small, the insignificant, the barely worth mentioning into something remarkable. This is our reason for hope the first week of our Advent season. This is the reason, because because the presence of God in us through Jesus Christ gives our lives eternal value, eternal significance, eternal hope. So I don't know what's going on in your life right now. This is where I wanna apply it to you. We're all in different places. Uh, For some of you, you might feel like your journey is going nowhere. You might feel like this is a wilderness season for you. Maybe you're running away from something. You're fleeing or you're just a little bit lost. You just feel a little bit lost. You 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 don't know what's next. You might feel like you're laying your head on a rock every night. You can't even rest. You can't even get some sleep. Maybe for you, that rock is depression or that rock is doubt or that rock is your anxiety or that rock is a a loss or or that rock is fear of the future. You're laying your head on that. You can't even get any rest. This Advent season is an opportunity for God to open your eyes and allow you to see beyond the material, allow you to see beyond the circumstances, beyond the physical, into what lies beyond that veil, beyond that curtain, the person of Jesus, the intersection of heaven and earth, Jesus who came for you. So for all of us who've put our faith in Jesus Christ, the spirit of God indwells us. You know what that means? There are no more insignificant lives. There are no more throwaway seasons. There are no more meaningless moments. You are filled with the spirit of Jesus Christ. That's the significance of the nowhere place called Bethel, the house of God. The nowhere place that became the sacred place so that ultimately Nobody people like us could know that God is with us, Emmanuel. Let's pray together. Our Father, into our places and spaces this season, places of want and lack, for some places of abundance, We have trouble seeing past what is right in front of our eyes, the circumstances, the obstacles, the blessings or lack thereof. We have trouble in our own mind's eye pulling back the curtain. So God, I pray that you would give us a gift of grace just like you did for Jacob all those years ago. That there'd be something in this Advent season Maybe it's this service. Maybe it's sometime in the week. Maybe it's next week. Maybe there's some Christmas Eve. There's some moment in time where for, for the, those in the room, especially that are just in nowhere, nowhere seasons of their lives, nowhere places in their lives, they just feel like nobody's even, that you would pull back the veil, that they would just be able to see with eyes of faith the metaphysical, the true reality, the intersection of heaven and earth, where God's space and human space intersect, Jesus Christ, who lives in them, the spirit of Christ in us. 
Would you gift us that grace, Father? We cling with hope and expectation. In Jesus' name, amen.